welcome to episode three of the We've Got Issues podcast, the one that we had to record twice. Today we're joined once again by Jess Moore. Hi, hopefully we won't have to record this another time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, this time we're going to talk about Sally Heathcote's Suffragette by Mary Talbot, Kate Charlesworth and Brian Talbot. So Esther, I'm going to start off like I normally do and ask you why you chose Sally Heathcote as this month's graphic novel recommendation. Um, It's because the centenary of the representation of the People Act, um, which gave certain women the right to vote. And I think it is really important to remember that um, this wasn't just, you know, people holding up placards and marching through the street. This was a real fight. And especially in kind of a time where I think we forget how serious the right to vote is and how important it is that we vote. And I think it was really important to kind of bring something like this in. So Sally Heathcote um, delves into the history of the suffragette movement in the UK. And it follows this main character, Sally, as she becomes involved in the actions of the WSPU. Um, which was one of the most well-known women's uh, suffrage groups. So how did you guys feel about it? What did you guys think? So, I mean, to start with, I'm very much a victim of sort of the UK's rather modular approach to history in sort of like their GCSE and Mm -hmm. A-level system. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked to many people and they have the same experience in that you learn a few bits in detail and it sort of rubs over the rest of it. So I think the suffragettes were an option for IVGCs or A-levels, but my school actually didn't cover them. It was kind of like, oh, you've got some Victorians, aid of industry, suddenly World War I happens, nothing happens in between, World War II happens, then there's a Cuban Missile Crisis. That was basically... (laughs) (laughs) my historical education so it's really only as an adult that um i felt i've been able to put all these pieces together so i found it quite interesting because i'd obviously read a little bit about suffragettes before because obviously it's a very interesting part of history i think for somebody in the modern day it can be quite odd to think that women didn't have the vote it seems something that is almost innate and natural um and this book is very informative i'd say about the movement but if you were completely new to it to just UK suffrage, not just suffrage in general. There's a lot of names and dates mentioned, so if you were going to read it, I'd recommend sort of skimming the Wikipedia article beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree um, with this idea that in the modern world, perhaps we've gotten very much used to the idea of women having birth as being natural. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I think a lot of people in general, not just women, but in general, take their ability to vote for granted. I mean, if we look at voter turnout in the UK, there's a feeling like it doesn't matter. And, you know, if we talk about countries that outside of Europe and we talk about, you know, whether women have the vote there or not, we very much talk about it in ways that's like, oh, but that's those weirdos, not us. So of course women have the vote with us. Um, I think that kind of discussion often happens in, in, in media. Um, and it's, it's a very kind of different thing in Belgium where you do not have the right to vote, you have the legal obligation to vote. So not voting is illegal wow. and you get a fine. <laughs> yeah, you get fined in Belgium. It's like a 50, 50 euro fine. Um, and, and people do like sometimes not vote and just take the fine, like if they're really busy that day, for instance. But it, it's very standard to, to go and vote. And it's actually very easy to get a proxy to vote on your behalf if you can't vote. So for example, 
um, students at university have special dispensation where they can go to their city hall, get a document, sign and sign it. I think you can actually download it now. So you just download it, mm. you write out your name, you sign it, you write out the name of the person who's going to vote on your behalf, and that person then takes that paper and goes. You don't need to get it stamped or anything. It's super easy to do. Yeah. And we have regular like 90% vote to turnout because that's just how it is. It's it, so it's it, it's very different. Um, but I I would say that this idea of taking the vote for granted is very much a thing in Belgium as well. Like it is taken for granted. People do feel like it doesn't matter. And then to read something where the right to vote so obviously matters. There's a real visceral need. That becomes clear as the vote is necessary, I think, in the novel. Yeah. I think what really came across in the book more was getting the vote isn't this grand philosophical idea. It was like, this is a meaningful way of impacting on the lives of women and the kind of um, conditions that they, they faced could be changed by having that vote. I think it very much highlights this idea of the only way for a group to be able to advance their human rights is to have a seat at the table. Yeah. And the only way to have a seat at the table is to have the vote. Because there's no other way to hold people in office accountable for their actions, accountable for the way they treat you and people like you. Mm-hmm. So I think the book very much kind of projects that. I think in particular, I think about the scene where, um, so Sally's been campaigning for quite a while now, and they go and meet the prime minister and they kind of feel like, oh, something's going to happen now. We, we have the Prime Minister here, we can, he's going to listen to us. And they go in and he tells them, I don't care, I don't care, I'm just doing this for publicity, now get out. And it's very much this idea of like, he wouldn't do that to them if he needed their vote. If he actually needed them to vote for him, he wouldn't do that. So it, it kind of very much, I feel, directly demonstrates how people in office can get away with treating you if you don't have the ability to vote. Because how else? Do you fight against that? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought, yeah. So. Yeah, so, we've gotten a a wee bit off off track there. So, I mean, I haven't asked you this yet, Sarah, but what did you think about it? Did you you enjoy reading it? I did, yeah. Um, I think... um, I was gonna. <laughs> this is a difficult one for us as an episode because we have actually already recorded. Oh, I feel like it's important to. We recorded it once and it was beautiful, and then <laughs> we forgot to save it properly. So, we sort of. Um, I'm kind of almost like trying to copy my own words, like yeah. I'm plagiarising from my previous self. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least now we are a proper podcast. I feel like yeah. that is the. I feel like that's like a hump that you have to go past. It's the benchmark. Every, every podcast <laughs> I've ever listened to has like a lost episode or something that was like half destroyed because of recording is- issues yeah. or had to be re recorded. Yeah. So we've passed that gone already. Yeah. I feel that's a good thing. So yeah, <laughs> if, if there's any sort of weird pauses or whatever um, that I don't manage to edit out, it's because it's me trying to remember what I have previously said about mm. stuff. The last time we recorded it was at least two, three weeks ago, but it was also much closer to the time when we'd actually read, read the novel. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been ages now, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even oh, remember we've, anything. Thought we've done so much stuff since then, <laughs> so it just happened. <laughs> What what were you do? what did you just ask? <laughs> if you oh, like I, how you like oh, it. Oh yeah, how yeah. Like yeah. It. Did what, you do it? Yes. Well what I was gonna say was, and I think past me also said this, was that I found this a lot easier to read than um Nat Turner, which we did for the last episode, which also now seems like forever ago. Okay, yeah. um, I think because it was sort of easier in terms of like feminism is my jam. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um and in that sense like it didn't bring up so much of the like the difficult, hard 
stuff that, that Nat Turner maybe did. It was a little bit more, I would say, comfortable. I think it's one of those things where it's really interesting because Nat Turner, and I think Leanne um, Renaud, who um, was doing that, that episode with us, she, she pointed out that when you talk about um, slave narratives, the, the morality in there is really confusing and mucky, mm. and it's, it's, there's so many grey areas. Whereas the, the benefit of this book and the benefit of hindsight <laughs> is that it, it's a very clear moral issue, isn't it? Should women have the vote? Well, of course they, they should. should. Um, I don't think any reasonable human being should ever doubt that at all. Yeah. Um, the end, full stop. Um, <laughs> so that's great. On the other hand, this narrative is a wee bit more confusing because um, there are so many historical characters that pop in and out, real people yeah. who existed. And then you have people who have very similar names. <laughs> and, and I don't know, it's like, what, four people whose name is Emily? Well, or something it's like two. That? But is it two? It feels like there's a hundred. But I had to reread the first bit again because they were referring to two different people, and but they're both, they both have the same name. Mm. And it's a little bit... I mean, I guess it's, there's no way of changing it because it is real life and those were yeah. two real people. Yeah. But... I don't know, there are just little things dropped in that maybe it's just good to have a little bit of knowledge mm. before going in. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely like a fair point to make, that in, in an effort to incorporate as many real events, as many mm. real people as possible, the narrative maybe has become a little bit muddled. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the reader, for, obviously depending on your own background and history mm-hmm. and stuff like that, it can get really confusing. But, I mean, despite that, I think we all enjoyed reading it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Definitely. no, I enjoyed reading it. I think it's just something to keep in mind that history is never a nice, smooth narrative. I think yeah. after the fact, <laughs> we like to think, like, yes, and there's a beginning, middle and end, and everything worked out in the end. But actually, no, if an author wrote real life, they would not have several people um, at the head of the suffragette movement having the same first name. <laughs> They're like, no, that's far too confusing. Yeah. It, that, that really reminds me of this, uh, of this song on the TV show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It, it sings about, you know, life isn't a movie. Oh, life yeah, isn't a story. And it has a line in it like, life is a series of revelations or something like that um it's not an actual carefully crafted mm. story it's a mess and we're all gonna die it's a really true fact that we have a tendency to kind of narrativize history because yeah. it helps us understand mm. it but um it, it isn't actually like a single forward progressive movement towards this kind of utopia it's mm. this two steps forward one step back kind of deal and i think oddly enough we find that in this novel itself where you have women striving for the vote, striving for the vote, and then they get interrupted by essentially World War Two happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, uh, sorry, World War One. My bad. Um, and it kind of, I think it really does impact the way that several different groups th- consider the vote or think about yeah. the vote. Yeah, you mm-hmm. have sort of Mrs. Pankhurst, who's very much like right. Suffrage is not as important at this time. We need to get as many people out there sort of fighting as possible and supporting our country. So, you know, she is part of the good old White Feather crew. What a good idea that was. Basically, if you were a man in good health, between a certain age, you appeared to be in good health, health, um, and were walking around, they'd be like, you should be on the battlefront here with the White Feather to show your cowardice. Aside from being, like, really horrible, that's also, like, ableist as hell. Oh, but, oh yeah, um, yeah, like sort of hidden yeah. villains. And you even ended up with people, I know this didn't happen in the second world war, I assume it happened in the first one as well, people that were working in sort of maybe a secret capacity, you know, doing some sort of espionage or whatever, were sort of absolutely shamed with the white feather when actually doing very important work towards the war, but they couldn't openly talk about it. Um, you know, considering that a lot of the, these white feather people were um, 
were women who were not going to go to war, being like, hey, I'm, I'm not having to risk my life, but how about you go risk your life? Just proof that women can absolutely be dicks too. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's one of those really interesting things, how like women are excluded from the draft, because in the 1970s, uh, a few um, feminist groups actually sued the United States for women not being included in the draft because they were like, ideologically speaking, a lot of rights as a citizen are bound up in the idea that you will shed blood for your country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that in itself is based on the draft. So exclusion from the draft it is actually a form of discrimination, which I think is really interesting. So obviously I wouldn't want to go to war, but I totally see their point of view in the sense that women being excluded from the draft upholds this idea of, or the narrative of yeah. men being... Mm. I'd be like, I want to be in the draft, but also not be... Yeah, uh, I, well, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be... I'll be drafted, draft. but I will also be a conscientious objector. Yeah, no, yeah. I, don't like, I, don't I don't believe that there should be a draft, like, at all, but if there is one, it shouldn't be based on sex. Yeah. That's, what, that's, what I'm, that's the point that I'm making. <laughs> and I'm trying to tie this into the idea of, like, it is very easy for these women to have gone, well, you're a coward, because there was no way that they would need to go to the battlefield unless they were signing up as nurses or something. And there wasn't yeah. as equal social pressure to do that if you were a woman. Yeah. Especially the, the kind of women that we see in this particular novel, mm-hmm. because quite a lot of them are um, middle class. So I think the Mrs. Pankhurst is very middle class, isn't she? Yeah. Am I misremembering this? No, no, no you are. Yeah. No, no. So yes, they especially would not have been pressured to like participate in the in the war effort, aside from like food shortages and, and making sure that they didn't. Over- they got heavily um, in the end, heavily involved in stuff like um, munitions drives and like, recruitment they? rallies and stuff, um, and just got and just kind of dropped the whole vote for women thing. And yeah, that's the kind of I guess we're, we're wishing apart sort of the end part of the. Mm. Um, the novel there but yeah it's, it's quite a sad end for it really because everyone sort of goes their separate ways and the war does disrupt what they are what they are fighting mm-hmm. for and it does separate people in what their goals are at the end because sally ends up as a as a peace activist doesn't she yeah i think she she becomes a pacifist yeah mm-hmm. and um advocates for no war which i'm gonna have to, in this in this specific case i'm gonna have to disagree yeah um, with sally on this one because I'm like, I don't believe in like having a standing army. But on the other hand, it's like, well, if if someone's like, I'm gonna come over there and yeah. fuck up your country, I'm like, well, you have the right to defend yourself. An interesting thing to think about, and this is something that um, obviously historians have argued about forever, is that we do not know what would have happened to Europe in general, but also to the women's suffrage movement without mm. the First World War. Yeah. Because without so many men dying, would women's suffrage have been granted that early? I don't well, know. I don't even know what kind of conflict would have arisen and how Britain would have gotten involved with that because, like, without the unification of Germany, which is basically what happened in World War Two, uh, World War One. Christ. Smush both wars. obviously they're exactly all, they the were same. All the same. I promise no, they're actually all everywhere. intelligent people um, who they know. That, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean that is the thing. Cut this bit out, will you? Yeah. <laughs> I must say it's also a Saturday, so we've probably got like weekend brains on yeah, there. Yeah. But the you know the, arguably the fact that so many men were dead that they had to give women the vote because mm-hmm. got well, no voters left. One of the yeah. other reasons, because I think people do focus on that, and I think in school they focused on that as the main reason. But it does come up, and this 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 is going to link back into something else. We can get back on track in a minute. I love oh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally into it. Is that they didn't want a return after after everything was kind of calm and it was yeah. a bit more settled after World War One. They um didn't want a return to some of the militancy that had been happening 
and you see what I've done there because what I've yeah. got we can now talk about some of the um, the key things that happen in uh, in Sally Heathcote, mm. uh, which is some of the, the militant actions that the subjects took. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this for quite a bit last um, time. Yeah, last time version um, one. In version, version one, one, version one of this podcast. In the perfect episode, like, no one will ever listen so, to. <laughs> that, it was, it was, we were so good. It was such a good... You have to just imagine that. Imagine that we made oh. sense and that we stopped getting things wrong. Wonderful, <laughs> coherent. It point. had a narrative. Oh, we, it was beautiful. We kind of went through the themes of the book as they came out. It was great. But yes, <laughs> the militancy. When we're talking about militancy, what we're talking about is the kind of the more extreme end of the actions that some of the, the suffragettes took in order to get attention for the cause. So they don't start off militant, as we can see. I mean, it follows it kind of the progress through in, in Sully Heathcote, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree. I think at the beginning, you actually just see them kind of organising, writing pamphlets, protest marching. And it's all very peaceful and calm. Yeah, and I think that's definitely also the kind of stuff they talked about when I was in history classes, the large-scale parades that they had, um, disturbing the political meetings, maybe breaking some windows and stuff, or chaining to railings. But actually, this is... I'm getting my facts here from this particular podcast that I listened to called John Snow's History Hit. Oh, Dan Snow. Dan Snow. <laughs> Dan Snow's history hit an episode about um, violence in the suffragette movement and they're talking with a um, an academic called Fern Riddle who wrote a book about a particular suffragette who was heavily involved in the militant actions of the WSPU and she describes the arson and bombing campaign that the suffragettes ran as uh, one of the largest to um, ever happen in the UK. I don't think we'd normally think of that in, about the suffragettes that they actually had. I mean, when you say arson and bombing campaign, it sounds quite mm. sort of intense, but it was. They, they used to set set fire to houses. They, they gutted complete houses. Um, they did set light to things like post boxes and put bombs in places. And really, although we talk about them only kind of damaging property and things like that, it's incredibly lucky that they didn't hurt anyone. I think that's really interesting because um, we previously very, very briefly talked about the moral complexity mm-hmm. around narratives like Nat Turner's yes. and how this is like a bit more straightforward. But I like how even though the cause in Sally Heathcote is, very, is obviously a cause we would all support morally mm-hmm. straightforward, it doesn't shy away from confronting us with those tactics that we, from a position of privilege, we don't have to fight for the vote, we don't actually have to sacrifice anything to go and vote, kind of confronts us with these very much morally complex actions, these morally dubious kind of tactics. Because, like you said, they are actually extremely lucky that no one gets hurt throughout the novel, because they they generally just blow up places. And, And I think it's interesting how that in of itself is kind of a fracturing within the movement because not everyone supports that kind of militancy. Yeah, that's something that does cause a lot of friction in between people. Um, but the WSPU is known for being militant, but then even within that group, it's still kind of split off, you know, from when it sort of started going from sort of breaking windows to those more extreme actions that had the potential to kind of harm people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because obviously when we talk about, you know, the subjects as a whole, but I mean, there were so many different groups that... It can sometimes be a bit reductive, I think, to say, or suffragettes wanted this, yeah. or all suffragettes did this. And I think, I don't know, I think there's this idea that when there's something that we have now agreed it was the right thing to like campaign or protest for, suddenly everything they did was fine and everything's like sanitised. And yeah, they were yeah. obviously perfect 
because there's this idea that oh the only good protest is peaceful protest i think yeah. the idea in popular culture is all oh, these suffragettes just marched and didn't do anything mm. else same with like um civil when rights. learning about the civil rights movement you have all this focus on martin luther king and it's like malcolm x who i i, I think we, we mentioned that in in the yeah, we one as well too. where we talk about the sanitization of protest movements mm. um and this idea of there being a right kind of protester mm. as if there is any way to protest as if there is any way for the oppressed to protest in a manner that is passable mm-hmm. to the oppressor. Mm-hmm. As if the responses to the quiet marches where movements begin wasn't completely over the top and often very violent as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I was watching the suffragette film as part of the research, the one that came out in mm-hmm. 2015. I think there's a policeman or something interviewing the woman who says about, you know, you know, you're breaking the law. And it's like, well, the law doesn't represent me. The law isn't fair. So therefore, I am not going to follow it. It was put in a lot better way than that. But it really struck a chord with me because I did think, you know, you have this idea of the law being right and kind of representative. But then when you realise it isn't, what is left to you? Because the law will not allow you. And that's what you were saying before about the vote being so important to actually give you means to change things. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have any means to change things, then the only option that you have is to, is to protest. That's the thing, isn't it? What is legal is not automatically morally correct. Or productive. Or productive. Um, and I think like the very obvious example is, of course, that in Germany, the Holocaust was legal. That was perfectly legal. Slavery was legal. All these kind of hyperbolic, really huge, massive things, yeah. massive things were all perfectly legal. Um, so what is legal is not morally just. We're definitely kind of brainwashed into this idea of thinking that the law is correct. And if the law doesn't protect you, there must be a reason for that. You must not be worthy of that kind of protection yeah. somehow. And so the only way to affect that, the only way to ensure that the law is just and is moral, is for everyone to have a seat at the table. And I think that's definitely something that, that shines through in, in Sally Heathcote's suffragette. Because I think it's really interesting to see what happens when the women start getting arrested yeah. and start having mm. going to jail and the, the violation of their human rights through the force feeding. I think that's yeah. really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think it goes to show how they are manipulated into trying to make them give in, which is kind of when you know that you're getting to people. The response from the government, yeah. the completely disproportionate response, demonstrates how effectively the suffragette combated the idea that they shouldn't have to vote, in the sense that your oppressor isn't going to do his best to squash you unless he feels that you're a genuine threat to the established order, right? That's the idea. The reason is they're trying to scare you off, they're trying to stop you from affecting this change. Mm. Because the system does know on which side its its bread is buttered. Like, it does know... You were going to say butt is breaded, Yeah, butt is breaded. I was going to say butt is breaded. I like that. Bread is Thank you for pointing that out. Thank you. but yeah, basically, um, the the disproportionate response kind of really demonstrates how afraid or how dangerous people who were smart enough to understand they were in a position of power yeah. thought the suffragettes were. And I think last time we did talk a bit about the force feeding because I think it is one of the most gripping sections in the novel. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is incredibly violent, isn't it? It's very visceral and violent. So to give a bit of background, basically. Um, Sally is arrested for protesting. 
was it it was, it was like a violent altercation during a march black, black friday which is a, an important date for suffragettes it was like they'd gone to protest after everything that had happened i think with them the bill re- being rejected again mm-hmm. there was a massive confrontation um with police mm-hmm. a lot of violence against the women and after that sally is yeah arrested ends up in jail sorry oh. jess no no on. that's all right <laughs> all that lovely historical detail mm, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> i love it um but the uh, jail they're put in is for not for political prisoners which the suffragette movement argues they should be political prisoners basically they go on a hunger strike yeah. to protest i mean i just wanted to interject to say that um it is obviously really interesting because they're arguing that they should be political mm-hmm. prisoners. But then for the government to admit that they should be political prisoners and put them in a prison for political prisoners would be to admit that they have a genuine grievance. Um, yeah. Yes, and yeah, whereas... Yeah. And to that, see that, that political be, beings. Exactly, yes. and that would val- validate their point of view, that would validate their argument that they should have the vote. Because if women cannot exist as political entities, how could they be political prisoners mm. and all this kind of thing? But, um, yeah, so basically they go on a hunger strike, um, which was a very effective uh, method that is, has been employed by many different movements across uh, human history. So the suffragettes use it as well. And what I thought was very interesting about this, this section is that, just to kind of elaborate on the artwork, so I've already mentioned that it's in black and white. And for, for those of you who read comics a little bit, you have obviously the panels, that depict the artwork. And in between the panels, you have the white space of the page background. Um, and that is something that um, Sally Heathcote quite traditionally employs. But when you get to the section where she's going, where she's in prison, she's going to be force fed, the background in between the paneling is black instead of white. And it very much reminds me of prison bars yeah. slammed over an etching. It's very very visceral and she can hear them coming she can hear them coming that they're going to force feed her because she's been refusing her meals and they start banging on the door bam 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 and the the word bam basically gets bigger and bigger and bigger Mm. as the paneling progresses and you just have close-ups of her face close-ups of the chair that she's using to jam the door shut and close-ups of the door itself and it's very claustrophobic Mm feeling that this paneling, this kind of um, artwork sort of um, encourages you to feel as the reader is very kind of, very tense. There is something reminiscent of an assault about it. The act of kind of forcing a tube down someone's throat and that invasion of bodily privacy Mm -hmm. is you know, has echoes of sexual assault about it. And the fact that at the end she throws up as well, which indicates the fact that it's not actually about feeding these women it's not actually about nourishing them mm-hmm. um because obviously they're sick at the end of it it is about humiliating it is about hurting and causing pain to someone um in a, in a different podcast suffragette city which is a whole series of episodes about um the suffragette movement they talk about one particular episode about force feeding and they mention that there are reports of women being force fed uh, rectally which clearly isn't a way to feed someone that is about humiliation and causing someone distress because they strap her down to this chair and they keep saying like stop struggling hold her down they're forcing the tube down her throat and when they leave when 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 they finish like the look one of the wardens, one of the female wardens, gives her is like a contempt. And it really is, you can feel it, it is about control. Mm. It's about 
punishing her. It's it's not about feeding her, like you said. It's mm. not about nourishment mm. at all. It is a form of punishment, a form of exerting their control over her body because they can. It, it is a form of assault. And I don't know, like it, it, it's a really gripping kind of section. I feel in the in in, in the yeah. In the book. I think that it, the book does do a good job of kind of making those moments that you do hear about in mm. history sort of more. Um, personal so you find out about you know like not only that that was a thing that happened but how might it have felt how distressing might it have been yeah it, it highlights the personal cost yeah and i think that we shouldn't forget that like i think the the novel addresses this as well when sally gets out of prison we've got very had... weak i mean the pankhursts get very weak i think sylvia ends up being carried around in a, in a chair instead because the repeated force feedings just take their toll on, on yeah. them so much. Because, not because just like you said, like when they force feed you, you don't actually absorb any of the nutrients. You just end up puking. Mm. So you're actually losing more fluid yeah. than you had previously. Because throwing up is really dehydrating. Mm. Um, so it, it takes a massive toll on the body. And when Sally gets out of prison, she, she goes to a friend's house in the countryside, doesn't she? To recover, to, yeah. To recover. And she gets to wear a badge because she's been to prison, and mm-hmm. it's this kind of idea that she has sacrificed something for the mm-hmm. cause. Yeah, Very, almost a medal of sorts. Yeah, yeah. like a a medal of honor. And I think it's uh, it's interesting how you know the novel talks about that kind of the physical cost of that, yeah. but also very much highlights the mental cost. It's not like she can just keep going, keep fighting the good fight, and yeah, I know that I'm right, and righteousness will sort me out. No. Yeah, she definitely, um, it definitely takes its hold, especially sort of towards the end after the militancy. Things like they um, blow up part of Lord Joy, Lord George's, Lord. <laughs> oh, what is wrong with me? Lloyd, Lloyd George. George, his house. Yeah. <laughs> um, she definitely starts to struggle with. She's not sure about whether she agrees with all of their tactics, you know, about how far they're taking it. Um, she's been worn down by things like um, Emily Davidson's death, when Emily Davidson um, runs out in front of a horse. Whether that's like to deliberately kill herself or not is kind of a bit debated, but still that happens in the name of the suffragette movement. And I think after all that, she just feels worn down by it. And that's, um, you know, I think that, that comes across quite well of the fact that it's not just about that kind of positive activism mm-hmm. of being like, yeah, we're doing the right thing. And it's all, it's that fatigue of being worn down by And because they're still not being listened to. They've mm-hmm. done all of this, but they, they still haven't got the vote at that point. And I think that's something that very much resonates with a lot of people mm-hmm. nowadays. I think there, there are a lot of divisive conversations happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think no matter what side you're on, a lot of people feel like they're not being listened to, like nobody cares, like they're screaming into the void. And that is exhausting because not only is the physical toll is exhausting and any kind of physical injury has a mental psychological effect that makes you tired. There's also the fact that, you know, just getting out of bed and showing up every day is exhausting. Having those conversations with people you care about even can be exhausting because something very true I, I personally feel about having those difficult conversations is that I always get really anxious because I'm like well this is someone I care about mm. what if we can't cross the divide and find a way to understand each other so that worry is very exhausting trying to phrase things in a way that someone else can understand can be really difficult and exhausting so it's not just that, it's then also combined with that feeling of I'm not being listened to, no one cares, no one respects my opinion. And it's this kind of 
perfect storm of complete exhaustion and degradation. And near the end, you can really see that Sally's kind of... she. It, it's not that she's giving up, it's that she's kind of just, you know, done. And I think that is very much the turning point for her to become a pacifist, because she's just like, I'm exhausted. Is this a way to live, this kind of violence? Is that necessary? Yeah. Um, and it's very much tied to, I think, the war, because for a lot of people, being part of the movement, of the suffragette movement, was being like being in a war for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think activist burnout is a very real thing, and a very real thing that sort of Sally suffers from. And I think the fact is, you know, in a way, especially, she does all sort of the right things, and, you know, the vote still doesn't get given to women until after the war. It's like, you know, great, you know, we protested. We I had to, went to jail, did a hunger strike, did all these things, and yet even then, yeah. it required so many people to sort of give so much of their life to get it to happen. It's like, I I don't know, anyone could be like switched on all the time no. and be 100% sort of devoted to not only actresses, but also you have to live your life and have relationships with people. Like, I don't know how anybody can do it, sort of be keyed in yeah. all of the time. And that, yeah. I think, and, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I think it's interesting how um, the first time I, I read the, the novel that I was kind of annoyed that they didn't show the part where women actually get the vote. That, that part is actually excluded. You don't get to find out Sally's reaction or any of the other women's reaction. It happens kind of almost behind the scenes. And I thought that was really weird the first time I read it and I didn't quite get why that had been done. But in hindsight and after talking about it more and thinking about that whole um, exhaustion part, it did sort of happen a little bit under the radar. After all that fight and all that push, it kind of just happened like, oh, yeah. it just kind of came in with a bit of a whimper. And I think because of that, at that point, you're like, yes, this is really good, but this massive cost behind it. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of quietly sneaking it in tricks us into thinking, well, it's all done now. We're all equal. See, it wasn't such a big deal after all. And I think the ending kind of highlights that because um, um, for those of you who haven't read the novel yet, the novel skips ahead mm-hmm. to about, is it, is it the 60s at this point? I think yeah. it is the it 60s. Is, it, is, yeah. it is like the late 60s. And Sally is an, an older lady, um, she's, an, she's an elderly care, I think, and her granddaughter goes to visit her. And her grandmother's like, oh, isn't it exciting, you're 18, this year you'll be able to vote. And then the granddaughter goes, I don't think I'll bother with any of that, grandma. And very much that kind of puts upon like, oh, I just don't want to deal with this kind of a can't be bothered um, sort of situation. And I think it, it's very interesting because it's like the contrast between Sally's fever and then this idea, we need it, it's a right, to, oh, it's just it's just a bother, it's just a pain, I don't want to do it. And it, and to me, it very much, the, the absence of the moment where we get the vote is very telling, because to me, personally, it really much feels like somehow there's there's been a shift and we've been tricked into thinking it's all fine now, everything's fine now, and certain things that exist in the past couldn't possibly happen again. Our rights are our rights. No one can take them from us, not in the West. Not at all we've suffered, yeah. all we've done. Certainly the government would never. And through thinking that, we risk our rights massively. It's that complacency thing. Yeah, um, it, 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 it's a complete... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that for me was one of the... It was just a real like gutting part of the novel. Because yeah. you, you see what Sally goes through and then to have someone just kind of dismiss that and go, oh yeah, you know, I don't think I'll actually bother with that is just just heartbreaking and does kind of really reinforce the idea of why it is so important Mm. to vote. Because we don't feel the urgency anymore. We're kind of divorced from that reality because 
Jesse mentioned the sanitization of his mm. narrative. Mm. Well, I mean, part of that kind of creates the illusion that well, it's not that hard to get your rights, is it? Some people have in their mind, or at least the popular culture has this idea that there is this like perfect democracy, mm. like that is a thing that exists. I think voting is important. Although I don't think voting is the be-all and end-all of political commitment, if that makes sense. No, I think, I think it's like a right. starting point from yes. where to go on. So, yes. like, not doing it, bad. But bad. there's more to it than yes, just exactly, that. Yeah. It's like, the very least, it's the minimum we can think. No, it's not going to solve everything, but it is the bare minimum mm-hmm. that any citizen of a democracy should do. If you don't want to vote, then you shouldn't live in a democracy. If you want to live in a society where people care for each other and look after each other, there's two things that you have to do. Pay your taxes and vote. The end. Like, that's that's literally it. That that, that is all that you are required to do. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, you get your unalienable... Inalienable? Inalienable. Hard word. Inalienable human rights. And that's a lot. That's a lot to have. I think people... Mm. People forget that inalienable human rights were not a thing until very, very recently. Mm. Like, even as much as, what, 100 years ago, that was not a thing. Yeah. And people forget, people forget that for most of human history, we have not considered humans to have had inalienable human rights. Yeah. Um, that were the same, no matter your colour or your creed or your class or your gender. And that's very, very new. And it's so easy to forget that. Yeah. And voting is the first step to maintaining that. It is the first step. And definitely, there, there are other things that we should be doing, protesting, staying informed over the issues. But that takes a lot of energy. And who in today's economy, after working 60 mm. hours a week, has the energy to mm. stay informed? Yeah. Cause I just wish someone could pump political knowledge directly into my brain without having, me having to exert any kind of energy. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I'm like, I want to know more, but also, I don't want to do anything anymore. Also, I don't want to read another article about how Trump's tweets are ruining the world, because I know they are. And, and it makes me the, really sad. It makes me really sad. I just don't have the mental <laughs> energy to, like, to wake up every morning and be like, oh, what's he fucking done no. now? Yeah, exactly. What did you think about not showing the vote, Jeff? I agree that, yeah, I think it was very much part of that idea that, well, first of all, it's not really connected with Sally's story, I don't think as much, sort of, you see... I mean, it could be. It could be. But I basically think this story is sort of mainly focused on when she was, like, a forefront of the movement. Yeah, that is And I think, you know, as she has her burnout, she, you know, the war happens, um, she loses... I don't know if they're married or not. They're they not married. married. She's she loses her partner basically yeah. in the war as well. So, um, and understandably, you know, going through that grief was mm. the vote as much of a forefront of her mind. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she would. She was glad when it happened, but she'd already been so much tra- been through so much trauma, mm. and I think so many people have been through that sort of like collective trauma. I think at the time that it maybe it felt like a bit of a hollow victory. The fact that it came in with such like that little whimper and snook in also, yeah. I think, was possibly a sneaky way of getting around that whole militancy thing because it kind of made it appear like it wasn't anything to do with that. It made it appear that it was to do with the men not being there to vote and things. And it kind of says that that militancy wasn't effective. But I wonder, in hindsight, whether it's a way of not admitting to the fact that actually it was quite effective. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's a really interesting point to make. Because essentially, by sneaking, it un- by sneaking it through under the radar after the war, when militancy mm. was at an all-time low, they could give women the vote from a position of power 
Because they didn't have to admit that the militancy was effective. They're like, here they you go. Here's this vote for you. Now, after the <laughs> war, you've done your best. Go on, then. you proved yourself. Instead of having to admit to, you know, the fact that what, what you've done is effective, what you've done scares us, which would weaken their own position. Yeah. And also, it kind of very effectively maintains the illusion that those tactics don't work, only peaceful protest works, which kind of preemptively mm. declaws any future movements. But I think you make an interesting point about the vote not being showcased as much because that's not actually the story. So I think it's interesting because we do see an evolution in Sarah and in, in Sally. Mm-hmm. So we first meet her. Well, her name is Sarah, though, isn't it? Sally. Yeah, her name yes, is Sarah. Sarah. But it's short. Apparently, in ye olde days, Sarah was shortened to Sally. Sally was more of a servant name, and then Sarah was yeah. more of a. That is. I'm sad that I didn't know this. Maybe I could have been had people call Lina. me Sally. It's like Elizabeth you, versus Lizzie. You know, there's a whole. You, you British freaks. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> the point I was making is that you, you first meet Sally when she's, she's just a servant at this time working and she's not very politically aware, mm. as we'd say nowadays. She's, and and we, we kind of go through her awakening to the cause, yeah. fighting for the cause, and then that kind of very sad burnout and that quiet kind of realisation like, what have I sacrificed and what has it gained me? Mm. Because she's also really isolated at that point, I think. Yeah. She doesn't have any family. She's very much alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting narrative to witness. Because then we see that kind of, I guess, the life cycle of an activist. And then mm-hmm. we jump forward 20, 30 mm-hmm. years in time, more 40, 40, 50 years yeah. in time to the 1960s. And we know that she, that she actually got married. We were told that she had children. The vote happened. But we didn't see any of that. We just see the end that kind of very much again questions the whole was it worth it mm. what have we achieved where have we come to mm. and makes us question how much do we take for granted now basically it's a real sad time and can, esther can you please choose a cheerful graphic novel next well, time yeah. because guys <sighs> the next one's ghost world which is also really depressing yeah thanks sorry like, right i'm this sorry is task for next time can you at least can you like light up a little well, bit well excuse you because i was about to say the one for january which is after the Ghost World one uh-huh. is um, in real life um, by I can't remember the name, but that's a really cheerful one. It has nice colours. I look forward to January then, shall yeah. I? Um, <laughs> so that's going to be grand. Thanks. That's going to be grand. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned a little bit. Sorry, so I oh, go ahead. about um, we were saying about the whole Sarah Sally business, and you said about class. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think we haven't talked about class yet, which is a course. very key part of this novel. Yeah. Yes. Um, this novel is particularly interesting, I think, because it follows one activist, Sally, and she, as we've alluded to earlier, comes from a very working class background. And as such, sort of her view of sort of suffragism is slightly different from someone like Mrs. Pankhurst, because Mrs. Pankhurst, although we see her do some very, um, I would say some very good, positive things towards mm-hmm. the movement. She's also quite dismissive at times yeah. of Sally. She does start off, I think she starts off kind of more positive. She likes, you know, she gives Sally a good reference, she buys glasses for her, but she still makes Sally wear the maid's uniform. Yeah, and someone calls her out on that. Sorry, yeah. go for it. Yeah. No, I just, yeah. well, that very much fits into this idea of um, as long as she can be the benevolent benefactor, yes. mm-hmm. she's fine. And that's something that um, you see a lot in like disabled activism where it's like, um, as long as able-bodied people feel like they can help us, and it's all about helping us, that's easy. 
But the minute that we start talking back and having a conversation about how, like, if you do this or this, that's actually really patronizing, you get this violent response. Mm. It's like, well, I won't help you then. Because being the benevolent benefactor makes people feel good. But as long as you're trying to have a genuine conversation about, you know, being equal and respecting each other, all of a sudden the other person comes at you with a sense of superiority that's being mm. threatened and they lash out. And I think that very clearly happens well, it, to Pankhurst. Yeah, and I mean, it, it comes about at the end of the novel when um, they're facing off against each other as, as peace activists and White Feather sort of movement member. And, um, and Mrs. Pankhurst says that she should go back to the workhouse. And no, she said, I should have left you in the Oh, that's it, sorry, yes, I should have left you in the workhouse. And that just is a really sad moment because you think that Mrs. Pankhurst has been, you know, rooting for has wanted to build a rook from these roots. She even talks at the beginning of the novel about... Um, she says she wants to vanquish the poverty of unmarried mothers, of deserted wives, of the pauper prisoner of the workhouse. And um, Sally gets really upset because she was one of those pauper prisoners and she feels like Mrs Pankhurst really understands their situation. So to be told in the end that actually she should have been left there kind of shows that really Mrs Pankhurst hasn't shaken off those class boundaries and she becomes less socialist as the... But you, you can... Because you, you, you see that in the way that... She she starts building this movement and she's very much hailed as oh the revolutionary oh it's amazing oh can't believe this, but then when people start forming their own opinions and disagreeing <laughs> with her she kind of blocks them out of the movement very quickly mm-hmm. and it 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 very, it very much in becomes this sort of grasping onto power under the guise of mm. opening up opportunities for other people and again it's kind of like as long as I can be a benefactor. It's great, but any criticism, and I'll cut you down. I mean, she even cuts out her own daughter, Sylvia, yeah. who starts having I- different ideas about the militancy part, and who actually wants to, because the WSPU weren't, um, they didn't want to align with anyone politically. But Sylvia began wanting to sort of align herself more with the with the Labour Party because she thought being aligned with the party would give them more chance of mm. getting the vote. But um, yeah, and her, her own mother cut her out of the movement, so she's a stone cold bitch. She yeah. was like, yeah, she's stone cold. But it's, I, I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, a lot of people, important political, famous people, do that, and it, it's that kind of like you're heaped with praise, skews your perception of things completely, and then the second you get like genuine valid criticism, it's like you're attacking me. Yeah. I'm gonna sick all my Twitter followers on you. Like a crazy person, but yeah, it's it, it's very much this this, this thing where um, oh, I kind of really want someone to redo the book, but like as a Twitter feed exchange now, because that's oh, hilarious. Yeah. But um, basically, we see we see Eminem Pankhurst very much holding on to her position of superiority as a middle class white woman, and very keenly guarding the sort of boundaries of what she thinks the movement should be about, mm-hmm. and sort of trying to very much cut down any dissent as it is happening and I think like you said we see that throughout the entire book but especially in the moment where she goes I should have left you in the workhouse to Sally Mm. that's very very sad Mm. it is upsetting and earlier on there is a point which is probably actually my favourite panel where um, this is quite early on um, there is a parade and Sally's going to take part and then she's asked why I don't think it's Mrs. Pankhurst, I think it's the other ones, isn't it? Because that's the thing, there's so many characters, it's hard to actually know sometimes who's talking. And they look kind of similar as well. Well, well, they're all wearing the same thing, they all have their hair in the same style, because that's what people did back then. So you're like, it's kind of hard to, like, oh, I'm gonna, you can't really go, oh, do you know what? 
I'm gonna give this character a blue mohawk to make him really stand out. Yeah. You can't really do that. The no. interesting um, historical change there. But the thrust <laughs> of this is basically that. Yeah, so um, someone do this book for me again, but in Twitter format, and have one of the avatars be like a blue haired mohawk kind of person. So I can actually That's tell a really you easy job to do within yeah, the last five minutes. Exactly. Um, but my point basically. Um, exposure. Sally is asked. Oh, are you going to wear your clogs and clogs and shawl in the march? And Sally's like, you what, mate? Like, I've never been a mill girl, you know. She worked in service. But then she is still forced to sort of dress up in this idea of a northern mill worker. Because the, the mill shows. workers look good. Like, that's yeah, because like, it's like, oh, sort of yeah, look at her. She's a woman because doing womanly things. And she still supports the movement. Isn't yeah, that good? good. Yeah. Also, yeah. It's like, it's um, it's really interesting, like, cause I was reading an article and it used this phrase called performative wokeness, which, oh, it's a good phrase. It is, because uh, as soon as you said that, I'm like, I know that person. I also know that person. We all know that person. But it's like how you can sort of very much talk the language and use the language of, like, whatever, liberation, mm. or in this case, the language of the suffragette movement. Um, and kind of espouse these very grandstanding ideas of like, you know, freedom and liberty and equality mm. for all, but you're very quickly caught out with the stereotypes that you very mm. comfortably engage mm. with. You can only be a working class person if you look like this. You have to yeah. live up to my stereotypes of what I imagine a working class person to be, because that's what they're making her do there. They're making her appear a certain way. They're not actually interested in hearing her truth and yeah. the realities of her life or the real kind of difficulties that mm. she has and the kind of change that would be effective for her specifically or people like her specifically. Yeah. So I guess what I will end with is that I think this book does quite a good way of showing sort of um, the difference in sort of how class affected different people in the suffragette movement and it shows that even though people can be like for one thing or have the right in inverted commas opinion about one thing doesn't necessarily mean they have the, the right opinions about mm -hmm. everything just because someone is seen as very socially forward in one aspect does not mean so basically you had some women that were campaigning yes all women should be equal and have the vote but then they still wanted to be stratified by class which is a bit awkward um, and there are a few bits as well in the novel where Sally is sort of people have a lot of difficulty like understanding her accent yeah. because she is from up north and she's sort of like judged on that which is quite uncomfortable because she does have I suppose quite an obvious working class accent people mm. know where she's from um, and what her background was from as soon as she talks so I, I think that's a positive I think that's quite good because it doesn't paint the suffragette movement as like perfect yeah. um, and I think that can sort of be mapped onto probably activism going on today what I will say however is though this is still a view of sort of this political movement from a very specific perspective. The, yeah. Every character in this book is white. Every character oh, yeah. is able-bodied as far as we can see. And there were people, there were disabled suffragettes, there were women of colour who were mm. suffragettes. Mm. Um, and queer suffragettes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, there's yeah, there's a big yeah. queer movement. I mean, I probably would have been in the suffragette movement so I could meet women. Let's be honest. Yeah, about just that. Like, yeah. um, I just want to just want to <laughs> meet a, a lady. Butch girl. <laughs> I'm just going to join the suffragette <laughs> movement. But um, no, I think that's a really good point because I mean, in narratives that I've written about, a uh, read, not written, that I've read <laughs> yeah. about the U.S. suffragette movement, there's a really interesting. I can't remember the details of this, and I apologise for it being so vague. But certainly, in 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 several marches. White Southern suffragettes demanded that contingents of black suffragettes 
marched in the back. Oh, this is what gets me. Like, how can you be so right about one thing and so like wrong, wrong about on the other? That. Because knowledge doesn't translate. It's like it's something that I see in like academic studies like all the time. You mm. have people who are like, oh, gender is a social construct. Yes, yes, it is. Good. And God then they you. and they know this and it's grand. They can talk all about that. Mm-hmm. But that language does not. That knowledge does not translate. Because you don't have people who think, oh, race is also a social construct. Yes. But in very, very different ways. In it very, can't be mapped very on in the same ways. way. And yeah. you cannot map the way that you think gender is a social construct onto the way that race works. And then you get these kind of papers that I've seen at conferences around just like, you racist! And you're <laughs> telling everyone, but you're couching it in a language that makes it seem like, oh, I'm just questioning these things. I'm just questioning these things. It's like, no, it's not that. It's not. And because language doesn't, knowledge doesn't translate, and language doesn't translate. Um, yeah. either. Um, translation is an art and not an exact science. And it's just really interesting how, yeah, you can be so, so right and so, so wrong. And performative wokeness, I think, plays into that a yeah. lot. That is one of the things that is kind of effective about the book is that it does show the women as imperfect. Mm. It, yes. doesn't, it doesn't try to paint them as always being heroes. It shows the complexities that make up that movement. Like, it's not one homogenous movement. I mean, yes, it's very homogenous in the sense that it's very white and able-bodied in this particular version, but it shows that they have very different personalities yeah. and different ways, different ideas about how these things should be done. Because you can all agree on something. Like, they all want the right for women to vote, yeah. but the way that they think that should be done and the reasons for it are quite different mm-hmm. the way it should be achieved what that vote should then look like yeah and then obviously why yeah because i mean we're saying it's 100 years since the women got the right to vote but it's a very specific category of women that got the right to vote 100 yeah. years ago it was only women over the age of 30 and it was only women who owned property yeah. it wasn't until i think 1928 that Hang on, am I getting that right? Well, it wasn't Possibly. universal the, suffrage. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't universal suffrage, basically. And, you know, I mean, uh, none of us in this room would qualify no. to vote under those circumstances. Almost. Even, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You'll never vote. Well, no, because you don't own property. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, just remind me that I'm a useless millennial who can't sell <laughs> my house. It's all right, I've got 50 avocados. <laughs> <Yeah. almost there. laughs> I'm gonna build a house out of avocados and like and secondhand books. That's oh, <laughs> gonna be the that's gonna be like the pulpiest thing <laughs> ever. Yeah, um, but yeah. So I it does do. A, I definitely agree. I think it is good at showing um, that the movement is varied. But man, am I hungry for those of the stories? Yeah, I want them, and because of the way we need them, sort of narratives have been prioritised or lost or kept. Yeah. There are so many stories out there that we don't have, and I'm hungry for them. I want to yeah. know their stories. I it's, want to know. It, and I think especially today, we need them. Like we mm. so need them because storytelling is how we make sense of the world. That's why we narrativise history. It's why we narrativise our own lives. Like. We will selectively remember things and stitch them together in a narrative to justify this is why we are mm. who we are. Mm. And by reading stories, we understand the world, we make sense of the world. Mm. And so the only way to like make people less horrible is for them to read stories that make them feel sympathy towards other people. Because mm. that's what we're very much lacking in today's society, like a sense of empathy um, for each other. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hungry for these, these are the stories as well. I think, I think we all are in this mm-hmm. podcast. 
yeah to be honest definitely so shall we do the wrap up thingy where we go what's your favourite panel uh-huh. or your favourite book or your, fa- your favourite <laughs> your favourite page or whatever yeah <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> well my favourite book <laughs> oh, my favourite book uh, so I just wanted this earlier but I didn't think I re- I don't think I mentioned the panel specifically in question mm. so going back to the Cogs and Shaw parade thing um, there is one small panel of uh, Sally and Seb parade wearing her shawl. You can't see the clogs, but we assume she's wearing them. And she just looks so grumpy. She looks <laughs> like those pictures on the internet where you get a cat and sort of dress them up. Yeah, yeah. she does look like that. But obviously you've got that air of like embarrassment in there yeah. as well. Page number. Oh, page number. Page number is 62. 62. Good number. Um, but yeah, it's just... She's obviously so frustrated that yes, she wants to give to the movement, but she wants to give to the movement as herself, not as this like idea of this perfect mill mm. worker um like hoping that esther isn't esther's going to choose her own this time because last time we had like La- when we did we had that bit where, where where i picked one and then you went oh mine as well and then and, and, then, and then i think leander was, was oh mine yeah. as well and i was like well for the love of god it shows guys, it's a good panel like the guess. love of god yeah. yes um i think oh i think it's really hard because oh i think what i'm gonna go for is page 105 um, which is the title page for part three, the Cat and Mouse Act. And it's like a suffragette um, sort of poster. And it's basically a cat who's looking at us really angrily, um, who's holding a suffragette in his mouth, like mm. a mouse, like a dead mouse it's caught. Um, just because it's like really striking and to me really kind of embodies this idea of the only power that we have or the only way to maintain our power as the people is by having the right to vote mm. um like the symbolism in this is really very strong and i think that was based on a real poster as yeah. well isn't it i think yeah a, a lot a lot of the posters and because there, there's actually a lot of posters and kind of advertising in this and all of that is based on mm. real life pictures so that personally is mine because it's the cat is really angry it's almost daring you to do something yeah and it just to me highlights how vulnerable we are um if we were to mm. be under the power of a malicious mm. and the big red word that they no surrender as well which yeah. i think is the name of part three i guess so you think yeah part has a little title but yeah no surrender it makes you feel like yeah i'm gonna go and do some stuff now yeah i mean um, i always like i, I think what I feel and think a lot of people in today's world feel that is that kind of, yeah, I want to go and do things, but what do I do? Mm-hmm. Aside from like retweeting or Facebooking or having angry Facebook yeah. fights. I want someone what to do like, I, do? I want someone to give me a handbook and be like, these are the useful things you can do. These are the things you can do at home. These are the things you can go out and do. This is how to do it. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm I just so, don't know where to start. That's and, and also like at the end of the day, I'm knackered, you know, yeah. like, I, I work a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> And like, I'm going to go home and like, binge some Netflix and I'm like, yeah. I'm going to, I'll do that thing tomorrow. And then I get annoyed at myself because I'm like, should do more. Yeah. I, th- I think we all wish we could do more. I think that's very common. Yeah. Um, it did make me feel quite, I think, quite guilty in a way after reading this and being like, oh, I probably should do some stuff. I have such a comfortable life. Like, oh my God. Yeah. And whether I could do that. Well, we all, we all question that at the end of the day, don't we? Like a lot of us question, like, where is the line? For you individually. For me individually yeah. as a person. How far could I go before I give up? Because yeah. like I'm not I'm not like afraid to admit this or anything, but like physical violence 
scared me. Like yeah. I do not know if I could withstand the force feeding. Like I don't know if I could if I could go through it. It wouldn't be so much the force feeding that get me, it'd be the hunger strike part because I like <laughs> yeah. I like food too much. And I'd be like I'd be like probably an hour in and I'd be like, oh No, because I can be quite stubborn about food. If I don't like it, I won't eat it and then I'll just sit there consumed by hunger until I get a really bad headache. So I think I could go hungry. Because I'm petty like that. But not the force feeding. But I don't know if I can uh, understand but the I don't know, because I think, you know, given... I mean, I'm making a huge assumption here, but I'm guessing none of us have ever experienced true starvation. Yes. This is also true. Well, that's what I mean. If I yeah. can't even we stand... We don't know what that's like. If, if I can only... If I can't stand, like, you know, not having my mid-morning snack and that drives me nuts, then what would I be like mm. if I was actually, like, properly starving? Mm. So I, that that's what worries me. But then again... Maybe it is different when you have that power and that fire behind you of a cause that you really, really believe in. So maybe that's what... I think it's one of the things where it's like, I, I believe in quite a lot of things, but I've never been put into the, into the position where that's been really tested, mm. where it's been necessary. Because, like, yeah, I go to marches and I go to mm. rallies and things, but as a white woman, it's not like I'm under threat of being arrested if I go to yeah, you a don't face physical or a violence or... Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm not very likely to face extreme physical violence again as a, mm. as a white woman like my identity protects me I'm also like pretty feminine appearing so there's mm. not there's not that kind of homophobia directed my way or that kind of thing so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm pretty safe um, and I've, I've never been put in, in the position where I have to take up arms or anything yeah but um yeah, so I don't, so I don't know. I just don't know where the line is. I think a lot of people would like to think that their line is pretty far ahead, that they could do loads before they back down. Because I think it's a really interesting thing of like my my thought was when I was reading the hunger strike bits mm. was that like I wonder how many women tried to do it and didn't manage it mm. and did end up being like I just can't do this and, and, and then and then having to come out and like having to face the shame. Yeah, and like yeah, potentially because like because then if if you were to see women like Sally getting their badge for having done the hunger strike, like how would you feel coming out having had to face the knowledge that you're perhaps not as I don't know I don't know how to phrase it because it's not necessarily a weakness like it is normal to have to miss yeah it's normal to not be able to do and I everything. wonder whether that also is what enables people to do things like not to say peer pressure almost of mm. like that because that was the the WSPU line if you get put in prison you demand to be put in as a political prisoner if they will not do that you hunger strike mm. should I go yeah, on to go do mine because <laughs> like we can go back and talk for another hour yeah about <laughs> So mine is also a part that we've already talked about, which is the very last page. I would give a page number, but I mean, it's 164, but it's essentially the last um, page. Mm-hmm. And it is the part where um, the granddaughter says like that she won't bother to vote because it feels like the entire novel is leading up to that one line that just mm. kind of punches you in the gut and say, see all this hard work? This was for nothing. This was kind of a bit like snot- mom. Yeah, this was like yeah. for your snotty 17-year-old daughter to say that she can't be asked to vote. Um, and how, like, because you don't actually see a reaction of Sally after that. You just, mm. all you see is her um, her medals and her sashes and everything, like a picture of all them lying on the side. And you'd just be like, imagine that. Imagine someone saying that to you when you fought mm. for the vote. Mm. You'd be just heartbroken, I think. Um, Especially your granddaughter. Like, there's an emotional connection there as well. It's not just a random stranger, is it? I hope she just turns around to her and goes, bitch, please. Yeah. <laughs> like, Sort your shit out. But then again, like I feel like her granddaughter isn't saying this within a vacuum, you know. Mm, I, I know. mean, this is 
an idea she has got from other places is an idea that's been like passed on to her. Mm. And I think I suppose the whole book is almost about the importance of like keeping these suffragette narratives because um, her granddaughter doesn't even know um, about her actual grandfather, her blood grandfather. Mm. Yeah, she sees a picture of him. And the one that died in the First World War, and it's like, who's that? And her mum's like, oh, that's my, that's my granddad. And she's like, no, it's, it's like, oh, the one that died. Mm. So it seems to be that this granddaughter doesn't know much about her grandmother yeah, at all, for whatever reasons. Obviously, it's only a few pages that were introduced to them, so we don't get the whole preceding 40 mm. years or whatever. Mm. So it seems that she doesn't have any knowledge of this, and that's probably yeah. why she doesn't care about the note. So, so I think part of that is you've got to keep that knowledge alive. Yeah. I wonder whether people have kind of consigned it to that, like, oh, that wacky part of grandma's history that she likes, yeah. that we don't really talk yeah. about because it's not oh, taken seriously. There's a really good, um, a really good graphic novel, and it's not appeared on the on the graphic novel recommendation, called Bitch Planet. <laughs> yeah. And Bitch Planet is really good because it's basically the envisioning of the future as a dystopian patriarchy, mm. basically. But it's really interesting because they have all these old because like there, there is um, a brief focus on um, in it, it's like a separate volume that's like a one shot where it's got like the stories that aren't part of the main story mm. in it and one of it is of an old lady who like lives in today's society basically and he's talking to her granddaughter um, and she's like in my day you know women worked we left the house we voted and everyone in the family is like oh but that was then grandma times were different then what what was right for people then isn't right for people now we know better now this yeah. kind of very much like the dismissal of that and it's really it's really cool because this is one hardcore old lady because the granddaughter has brought her boyfriend home and she's like all i want to do is please him all i want to do is be his wife and the grandma at one point asks her is that really all you want and the daughter goes yes that's all i want it makes me so happy and the grandma goes what a fucking disappointment you turned out to be. <laughs> and it is the most hardcore thing I've ever seen. And then they put the old lady in prison for saying that. Like, it's not. But I think it, it raises the point how we need to not dismiss this kind of, oh, it's just, you know, wacky part of our old history. You need to keep these things alive. You need to Why do people think that? How did that happen? Yeah. 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 Um, so are we ready to draw things up? I'm happy to wrap things up. Is there anything that anyone wants to say? I want to do didn't... a bit of recommended reading, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, go on. Okay. So, um, podcast-wise, there's Dan Snow. I can't say Dan Snow without laughing now. Dan <laughs> Snow's history hit. Um, episode, The Violence of the Suffragettes with Fern Riddle. And the book that Fern Riddle's written is called Death in Ten Minutes, Kitty Marion, Arsonist, Activist, Suffragette. Um, which is a book that I would definitely like to read because it's about um, one of the militant suffragettes. She used to work in musicals and then became involved in, in the suffragette movement. And she sounds like a fascinating woman, so that's definitely on my to-read list. Um, and they talk about her a bit in that podcast. The other one was Same Shit, Different Century, which was a podcast. Now, this is the thing that confuses me because it might also be called Suffragette City, so I don't know whether it's the same podcast under two different titles but anyway you can search for either of those and um, that's three women talking about different aspects of suffragettes mm-hmm. in history and they do actually go um, in some of their episodes into more detail about um, disabled suffragettes and um, women of colour who are suffragettes as well so if that missing bit of um, history from that is, is included in there. Reading wise um, I'm currently trying to read and I'm still trying to read <laughs> Alice Hawkins and the Suffragette Movement in Edwardian Leicester 
Uh, the reason I'm struggling with it is because it is a little bit dry. I'm sorry, Dr. Richard Whitmore, right? <laughs> like, I get what you're trying to do here, but also his, his, his writing's a little dry. So I'm desperate to know more about Alice Hawkins because she is um, a suffragette from Leicester. She has the um, statue now in the Market Square. Fascinating, but um, it's just a little bit... Easy to do. I hope he's not listening and then we're yeah, crying. Yeah, no, no, well, what what is it? Leicester. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Richard Whitmore. Do, do you know what? We should have made more entertaining. But yes, are we happy if you like me, like seeing all the kind of the realistic costumes and the, the idea of what everyone looks like in that period yeah. and gives you a more kind of firm reality in that world. Um, again, just kind of focus on um, white able-bodied suffragettes. There is another avenue of learning about that movement. So yeah, wow. cool. I would say um, if you do want to read the book, but you have like no standing in like suffragette history at all, go on YouTube, look up horrible histories. Suffragette song. It's about two minutes thirty. It's a nice little catchy song about the suffragette movement. Give you some of the names. Can I sing a bit of it? No, I have the voice of the devil. Um, and the <laughs> second recommendation, it, it's just a bit of fun. It, it actually is about the American suffragette movement rather than the one in um, the UK. But it's um, a parody of Lady Gaga's Bad Romance. So if you just look up Bad Romance suffragette on YouTube, that will come up. It's got really good costume design, and obviously <laughs> Bad Romance is a catchy song, and gives you a bit of historical love. So nice, mm. nice, nice. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Um, remember, you can find out more information about the monthly podcast recommendations page and today's comic via the links in the show notes. Um, we'll probably also write the recommendations that we've put down yeah. in there. Yes. Uh, if you want to give us any feedback, um, please don't ask for the lost episode. It is definitely lost. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we welcome feedback. So, please send us an email uh, to wgipodcast at gmail.com. Next month's recommendation is Ghost World by Daniel Close. So, get reading and you'll hear from us again in December. Woo! <laughs> There's no ghost. No ghost in Ghost World. None. There are now. There are none. <laughs>